there are inevitably people who have trod the path that you're on before. And whereas it may feel like an exciting adventure that you are on alone, there are people who have made mistakes which you don't need to make because they can tell you what they are. There are people who have had successes which you won't understand until they share them with you. So the role of advisors and mentors and board members and however they come into your company, it doesn't really matter. What matters is take advice. Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's built uh, several startups to seven and eight figure businesses, as well as the founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where we help startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. And today we have another great uh, guest on the episode, uh, Remy Bloomfield, I almost said it wrong, Um, but uh, Remy is, is a first of all, lives in uh, Kent, England. So he'll, his accent will be slightly different than my accent. I'm always slightly jealous of other people have accents. So generally Utah has the most in a good, or has a, the least recognizable accent. And that's an interesting side fact, just as a side. Um, that's why there's a lot of um, actual call centers that are, are outside or out in Utah is because we don't have a very recognizable as, accent and we don't have a lot of words that we are, are, are based on where you're from. So we actually have a lot of call centers because we don't have much of an accent. So I'm always jealous of an English accent or an Australian accent or other cool accents. But anyway, now I'll go back from my aside. So um, Remy has a um, history in doing a lot of what I'd say journalists or working in the um, film and TV and radio or broadcasting production, uh, those type of industries. So Started out his work as a um, Wall Street journal, as a reporter in the Wall Street Journal, then switched over to be a journalist for another company. And then uh, at one point, the company he's working for um, went under overnight. And so he had to make an, a, a bit of an adjustment and then bringing him up to where he's at today um, with doing some content creation and then building his own business. So there's a very, uh, very condensed version of what we'll go through today. But welcome onto the podcast, Remy. Thank you. It's great to be here with my English accent all the way from England. Hey, as I said, I'm always jealous because nobody nobody ever says Utah has a cool accent. So whenever I hear somebody else's accent, I'm always just slightly jealous. But So I gave you maybe a brief overview of where you're at, but maybe if you wanted to start back in history and tell us a little bit about your journey that got you to where you're at today. Well, you did a great job, Devin. So I did start my career as a reporter for the Wall Street Journal TV report and I went on from there to be a reporter on American TV stations where I actually learned how to speak to Americans in English harder than you might think. So, but it just... to, so as a side note, so are you able to turn off your English accent and have an American accent? I am able to do that but that isn't what I did on TV. I just spoke English in a way that was clear so Americans could understand it. Oh, um, fair oh, the reason now, now you've got me down another rabbit because I don't know. Are you ever familiar with the show House? It was an old uh, doctor show. MD. Yeah, yeah. Hugh so, Laurie. Hugh Laurie. I, I like Hugh Laurie. But he was, I think he's English. Anyway, he has an accent. I can't remember if it's English or not. But then you yeah. watch the show, you have no idea. And then I watch like, you know, when he does other things and he talks in an English accent. And it was, it was just interesting how you could switch it on and off so easily. 
Well, I can talk in America and I can speak with an American accent. You might not actually know that I was from Great Britain when I'm speaking American like this, but it feels a bit phony, so I'm going to stop it right now. Um, <laughs> that was pretty good. So I didn't mean to do it. It just was, we got somehow got down that rabbit hole, so I thought it was interesting. So one question before you dive into that, when you did Wall Street Journal and then you did the other one, so what kind of, because, you know, excuse my ignorance, you know, Wall Street Journal has a lot of, I would say, different types of articles or different types of categories and certainly journalism in general. So was there a specific niche of, hey, I cover Wall Street and I cover the, you know, stock exchange or did I cover businesses that were fraudulent and they're, you know, now they're getting investigated? Yeah. What kind of work? Yeah, no, I was a features reporter and the Wall Street Journal report at that time, the Wall Street Journal TV report only came out once a week. So whereas the paper was very reactive or as reactive as a daily printed paper could be to the news, the TV show was taped on a Friday and usually went out on a Saturday, Sunday, Monday across mm -hmm. the state. So we did mostly feature reports. In other words, taking stories which had been in column six of the front page of the Wall Street Journal and turning them into features. So I, I did what you would call feature reporting on trends in lifestyle, spending, consumer habits, uh, that kind of thing. And, and that was mostly my career in the States. And I was in my late teens, early 20s when I was doing that. And I then came back to England and built my first TV production company when, as you rightly said, the, the channel that I was working for merged and I was made out of out of work overnight. So I, since my, since my mid twenties, I've been an entrepreneur founding companies, um, two of which I've managed to sell. And then I've gone on to work for the parent company in what is termed an earn out. So I have a little understanding of what it is to be an entrepreneur and also what it is to be the acquiring mega company that acquires small businesses and all this double. I'm going to yeah. jump in just because you hit on a very interesting note. Let me jump quickly off after it. So you had the one company that you were working at and basically kind of overnight it went under, right? Or you it, overnight it, it went away. So how do you, as an entrepreneur, as a business person, go from, hey, we're having a good company or successful to almost overnight having it shut down? And what's that experience or how do you deal with that? Because it, in some ways, you know, I get it's a different motivation and reason, but that's kind of what happened with a lot of people with COVID, right? Things were going great and almost, literally almost overnight you had lockdowns and shutdowns and people had to say, my business is gone or I've got to figure out something else to do. So how did you make that transition or how did you deal with that? Well, I was in my 20s, so I was quite lucky in that way. Also, the company that went under wasn't the company that I owned. So it was really only an upside. I didn't see that that way at the time. It seemed like a disaster but it gave me the opportunity to found my first company because when you're creating something from nothing, it only, there's only upside. Um, so my company that was employing me going out of business actually provided the opportunity to start a new company. And what I would say is this, Devin, I have been coaching through this pandemic, both the founders of companies that are retrenching and and founders of companies that are just launching now in this pandemic. And what's really interesting, I think, is to look at the lessons of these pandemic startups and see how we can learn from them. Because what they're doing is they're just saying to themselves, what is the company I would love to be running for the next 10 years? What is the company that I feel most excited by? What is the company that has a future from this point on? And when we don't carry the past with us, 
we're able to be much more creative and much more inventive. And a lot of the founders that I work with who have been working on their business for 10, 15, 20 years feel a great sense of loss because they're having to cut people back. They're having to uh, give up offices. They're having to make these very tough decisions around slimming down. Whereas what I'm trying to encourage them to do is to see this as a time when they can actually rise from the ashes as any kind of phoenix they wish to because effectively everything has stopped mm. so it's really hard when you're a, to turn around a ship when you're in a in a current or in the wind but when you're in a dead calm you can actually say is this the right vessel for us or would we be better rebuilding this vessel in a new way and what's been really exciting is to see some founders use this as an opportunity to create a new business from scratch around the debris of what exists around them to say, what is the company that we would most love to be running and then try and assemble the team that they need to run that. And very often it's a smaller company with less people on the payroll. It's in smaller premises or people working remotely. And nearly always it's something that's connected to their vision of the world now. And it's often a vision that involves giving back because I think, the only kind of company that really has a future is a kind of company that connects with communities and values of people around them. That's who we want to buy from. That's who we want to work with. No, and I agree. And it, it gives me kind of pause or reflection back on some of what would be my own journey. And I typically don't share mine. I'll give just a quick aside. Um, Please. And, you know, so one of the companies I started with when I was all the way back in MBA school, started with a business company or a business competition and then buying out the partners and it was for a wearable for hydration monitoring. And at one point, um, it went through a period where we got a frivolous lawsuit, but we were building it, it was going well, and then all of a sudden we got a frivolous lawsuit. Contrary to, yes, I am an attorney, but it still takes a whole lot of time, money, and effort aside from building the company to deal with that, whether it's a good lawsuit, frivolous lawsuit, anything. And people always say, oh, I'm gonna show them in court. But yeah, it takes money away from the business. You can't reinvest, it takes time away. And short story is, is that, you know, it put us, not a full pause, we were still going, but it put a very large pause on the business. But it also made us sit back and reflect almost kind of what you said is, now if we were to, you know, reimagine what this business could be or what we could build with this business or how we could adjust it, what would we do differently? And from that, you know, we ended up acquiring the company that sued us, which we got them for pennies on the dollar. And then we also pivoted and took it in a much different direction. And it's provided a lot more opportunity since then. So, but it's kind of that having to sit or sometimes to have being forced to take that hard pause that you oftentimes don't want to do, but because you're, because you're entrenched, because you've been doing it away. And, and if you would actually take that hard pause and sit back and have to think about it, it can create a lot of better businesses or opportunities. So just, that was my short aside. But maybe as we jump, so now let's jump back into your journey just a bit. So had to take that pause, had your own production company. So then how did, the, how did you pick up the journey from there and where did you go from that point? Well, I guess what I discovered is what many leaders discover at a certain level is that 90% of what I was doing running my own companies was coaching the people who were at the senior management of that company. And the only thing was I wasn't trained to be a coach and they weren't coming to me for coaching. So it was a slightly weird situation, which I decided to take action on by training as a coach. Cause I thought if my job, 90% of my job is coaching people, I should have some coaching skills. 
And I guess I discovered the fundamental difference between what I was doing before as a coach and what I was meant to be doing as a coach was that before I was trained, I was trying to solve people's problems for them. I was rescuing. Um, whereas having been trained as a coach, I've learned how to get people to solve their own problems. So I don't need to understand your industry intimately in the way that I understood the industry I was in before. I simply need to know how to lead you to a place where you can make informed and better decisions from the place of a leader. So I did that training and found that I so enjoyed that process, being a professional coach, and I so enjoyed the luxury of being able to work with people across the creative industries, not just in the television production sector that I had experience in, that I decided to roll that out, and, and that's what I have grown my business to do. So now I run a business which only coaches founders, and 90% of my founders are the founders of content businesses, publishing companies, TV production companies, animation houses, gaming studios, and the like. And I've created a nine-part program for founders everywhere in how to build, grow, and sell a successful content-driven business. And, and that's, yeah, that's my livelihood, and that's what brings me joy. No, I think that that certainly is a, is a, a fun path to go. So one question is, and as I dive a bit deeper, so you kind of alluded to it or started into it, but as you, you know, you decided, hey, what I'm really doing within my production company is oftentimes more doing coaching and mentoring and helping them out and guiding them than I'm doing production type of a thing. But, you know, so as you made that transition, was it just a kind of a stark one day I woke up and I had this realization that I'm going to switch more over to coaching or is it more of an incremental or what kind of caused that transition because for a while in your career you were in the production you worked everything from Wall Street Journal to TV or TV shows and production and uh, niching down and focusing on that and it seems like you know while you're still in the same industry but you're doing a you know different job on the coaching side how is that transition or you know what what gave you, motivated you to make that transition? Well, I, I guess it was a couple of things. It was, first of all, the other 10%. So I wasn't just coaching as the leader of my own company. I was doing it a lot of the time, but not all of the time. And then also the fact, Devin, that the people I was coaching weren't coming to me for coaching. Very often that was what they needed. However, that wasn't the contract we had. They were my employees and to coach employees is important, but you have to, the best way to coach people is by invitation and with permission. And since I loved coaching, I figured I actually saw the difference between the experience of coaching people who'd come to me for advice, who'd come to me for mentoring and special business advice and coaching the people who were working for me, who I was coaching. And it was so much more enjoyable coaching people who had come to me specifically for that and were paying me because when you pay somebody else when they're an employee it's really hard to coach them it's really hard to coach them because they're trying to impress you they feel like they should be taking on everything and have all the answers they don't necessarily want mentoring and coaching um, whereas the people who i now coach want it so that's a big difference and that that makes all the difference in what i'm able to achieve for them hmm. No, I mean, that makes good sense. So, so now as you made that, you've made that transition, now it's focusing on the coaching and finding clients and people that actually want to coach, 
you know, has the business gone well? Has it gone up? Has it gone down? Has it been a roller coaster? Or how has that shift to coaching or gone as far as, you know, what you're now that you've kind of put your focus on that? Well, my business is very specific to, to founders of content companies and it has grown to that. So I had a lot of clients who weren't necessarily in that space before and now all my clients are. So that's the main difference before. I think when I started out, I was understandably risk averse. I didn't want to put all my eggs in one basket. And, and this is really one of the key bits of advice that I pass on to any, any founder of any business. It's so important to define your niche in a very narrow way. And I thought that I was defining it in a narrow way by saying I coach creative industry leaders, because that to me seemed quite narrow, but it isn't nearly as narrow as saying I coach founders of content companies. So there's lots of creative leaders who I don't coach. And if you'd asked me to pin that to the wall when I started, I would have said, I can't do that. No one will come. But what I discovered is they do. And in fact, you know, the narrower my niche was, the more clients I attracted. And my, my company has grown to the point where I've decided to launch this course so that I can roll out a lot of the content that I deliver one-on-one -on -one, uh, with people via video around the world because it's just not possible to coach everyone one-on-one. -on -one. No, not unless you can start to code yourself or you have a very, very niche market, but yeah. And I, and I think that that, you know, the draw, not the drawback, the reason why a lot of people don't niche down or they don't niche down as much is because you feel like you're leaving money on the table, right? If I niche down so many, I won't, I won't have any clients and, I'll lose, and or I'll have all these people that would otherwise be my client, but then they think, oh, he can't do that because he's too niche. And so I think that that's kind of almost a, you know, for lack of a better word, a trap that a lot of entrepreneurs or startups get into is you have to be everything to everybody in order to make sure you don't lose out on any of the sales or, you know, lose out on any of the new or clients that could walk to your door. And, you know, I, I would tend to agree with you more that as you niche down, as you find what one you enjoy and two, what you can offer, where the value is that you're much better at and different from tends to add or helps to grow your business more and make it flourish. And that's even as I look at, you know, what we do with Miller IP law, most of the legal industry doesn't niche down to startups and small businesses. They want to go for big businesses and I get why and they can make a lot of revenue. But when we niche down said, okay, our really our focus is startups and small businesses. That's who are going to serve us. That's who we're going to build things around. It was when we started to really have that focus that it helped us to grow and to, and to expand versus what we were doing previous. So I think that that's very smart. So now as you, so now as you take that and you say, now let's look at the next, six to 12 months, where we're headed, what we're going to do, where, what, how we're going to build or how we're not going to build or how we're going to stay small or whatever the plans are. What does the next six to 12 months look like for you guys? Well, for me, it's really rolling out my nine part course, which is called Standout for Content Company Founders because there are people in Canada, Australia, across America, New Zealand who are in this very interesting time. And I say interesting advisedly, but it's challenging. And it's around how do we create a company that has a future and that excites us? Because if you're the founder of a content company, it's really important that you love what you do. So it's not just about surviving. If you want to survive, there are plenty of other things you could do. So how do we build a company that we love running, that has a purpose, that delivers to clients and that has a future so that 
one day someone will want to buy it and that one day may well be a bit more in the future than you thought it was going to be before because we're in strange we're in strange times i think there will be a lot of consolidation because for many reasons not least because medium-sized companies will find it more efficient to be brought together whether they do it uh as collaboratives or whether they're acquired by larger companies so i think there's going to be consolidation um and there's going to be a lot of repurposing around companies redefining what they want to do so i'm there to support the businesses that do that and and that's you know that's my role as a business advisor and a, and a coach i don't have any huge plans to grow my business beyond where it's at now um, but i am excited by the possibilities which our digital age offers and you know to your point about niching um, and by the way i think being an ip lawyer for small to medium-sized companies is quite niche because you're an ip lawyer in itself just being an ip lawyer in itself is quite niche um, but no one actually goes out online looking for a lawyer right they look for a divorce lawyer or a, a corporate lawyer or a ip lawyer so i think saying what it is you do well is so important at whatever sector you are because uh no one actually goes out looking for a coach or business advisor they go out looking for a coach or business advisor with a specialty which is their specialty so you stand you immediately stand out from the crowd when you say what it is you do best and well because that then connects you with the people who are looking for you so if you just said you know we're a, we're a lawyer who would come to you all the wrong people whereas if you say we're an ip lawyer for small to medium-sized businesses you immediately attract the people who have that need and it's the same for me i am a coach for founders of content companies who want to build grow and sell no and i think and, yeah and I, on that i think that it one it clarifies your message right so that way when startup you know and i'm taking my example the same for you when startups or small businesses come to us, they know, or when they're looking for an IP attorney, one that they can find someone that actually lines up with what they're looking for. But then when they find this, they know this is what they do. And it's a much clearer message rather than just, hey, we're an IP firm that does IP patents and trademarks for anybody out there. And they say, okay, well, they're probably the same as everybody else, right? We don't stand out because we are, the, you know, when you make it so broad, you don't, you know, nobody knows that you, hey, we have this area of expertise or specialty because you're trying to be everything to everybody. So that's kind of, I think, kind of plays off with what, what you did. So, so now as you take that and you're, you're building it, we're going to now jump to the two questions I always ask at the end as we start to wrap up just a bit. So the first question I always ask is, uh, throughout your journey, what was your worst business decision you ever made? Well, I think it was probably a series of repeated worst business decisions that were the same worst business decision. And I think it's another thing which small to medium sized founders often do. Um, we start businesses. I started a business so that I didn't have to work for somebody so that I could be my own boss. Right. And I started a business so that I could have autonomy and I started my own business so that because I, I liked running my own business. But what I didn't do when I was first running my own companies was I didn't hire people who were better than me at different things. I didn't hire people who were more experienced, older, had more connections, had their own niche specialties. And of course, clients occasionally gave me not so subtle hints in a British way. You know, they'd say, have you ever thought about hiring such and such an executive? And I, I'd go, no. And 
Of course, what they were saying was, we think you're too young and too inexperienced to trust with this much money in this kind of project. And we, as a client, would feel much safer if there was someone who we could blame who had a real reputation in that area. And I was missing a trick, which I think a lot of founders of small businesses miss, which is when you are the owner of the business, whatever opportunities the people who you employ bring, you benefit from. So if you bring in someone with twice as much experience and twice as much pulling power and twice as much name uh, recognition as you have, whatever business they bring in, no matter what deal you do with them, you're still benefiting. No matter how much you pay with them, no matter what the split on profits is, you as the founder are the person who's benefiting the most mm. and your business is benefiting the most. So it's really important to put that ego aside and just go, what would it take to make this sale? And it's usually a person. It's hiring a person who's the right person for that particular project, relationship, client, whatever it is, and, and doing it at whatever the cost to your self-worth, feeling of being good enough, just do it. So that was the mistake I made. I didn't hire people who were as good or better than me in different areas. And it took me a long time, way too long. I'm embarrassed to say how long it took to actually turn that round and recognize. You hit on a note, which is I think common throughout a lot of stars. You know, as a founder or co-founder, you guys, first of all, you think that you're, you're smarter than everybody else or you can do it better than everybody else. And then you also tell, tend to tell yourselves the lie that, hey, well, by the time I bring someone on, I'm gonna have to train them. It's gonna take me longer to bring them on board and train them than me just doing it myself. And so you end up spending more time and effort. And at some point you may be able to do a better, you know, one off or short term, you may be able to do a given task, but if you're always forever doing it yourself and never bringing on those people with expertise and or being able to offload it so you can focus on what you do best, it always makes it for, you know, at some point you're not able to deliver or you're always running behind or you're never able to do or grow as well as you want or provide as good of a service. So I think that's a good lesson to learn from. And I'd be in the same boat as you as far as uh, waiting too long to my first hire and yet, then once you start to make those hires, you say, oh, now I can offload this and I can offload that. And these people are going to do this much better. And I can focus my time on this, which was a lesson that I had to learn the hard way as well. So, so as we jump now to the second question, which is um, if you're talking to someone that's in, or just getting started with a startup or a small business, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give them? I would say choose your mentors and advisors. and Again, it's a matter of swallowing whatever you need to swallow in order to do that because there are inevitably people who have trod the path that you're on before. And whereas it may feel like an exciting adventure that you are on alone, mm. there are people who have made mistakes which you don't need to make because they can tell you what they are. There are people who have had successes which you won't understand until they share them with you. So the role of advisors and mentors and board members and however they come into your company, it doesn't really matter. What matters is take advice if you need to pay for it, but make sure that you're learning from other people's mistakes so that you don't make them. No, I, I think that's, that is great advice and something that everybody should certainly um, take to heart. Well, as we now, as we're wrapping things up, if people want to, whether they're in the content creation industry and within your niche, they want to use your services, they want to learn more, they just want to learn more about your story or otherwise connect up with you, what's the best way to connect with you? The best way is on my website, which is remyblumenfeld.com. 
and that is spelled R-E-M-Y-B-L-U-M-E-N-F-E-L-D.com, remyblumenfeld.com, or of course on LinkedIn. All right. Well, I definitely encourage people to reach out. I think you're you're certainly for within your niche a great resource for people to to use and to utilize and to help them to grow their business and find those mentors and those coaches and people that will help them excel. So thank you again for coming on the podcast. Now, for all of you that are listeners, if you have your own story to tell, your own journey, then you'd like to come on and be a guest on the podcast, feel free to go to inventivejourneyguest.com and apply to be a guest on the show. And uh, for those of you that are listeners, make sure to click the subscribe to get the notification of when each time a new episode comes live so you can won't miss any of the great episodes, including this one. And uh, last of all, um, for those of you that are, need help that are startup or small business with your patents or trademarks, feel free to reach out to us at Miller IP Law. Remy, thank you again for coming on. It's been fun to hear a bit of your journey. Wish the next, le next led leg of your journey even better than the last. And uh, look forward to seeing how things continue to go for you. Devin, take care.